Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to Food Focus, Trent and Leighton Kling with you. Lots to talk about on this episode, and I know we say that a lot on this podcast, but this episode, there is a ton to talk about, including horrendous news at Ruby Tuesday. We'll talk about Starbucks and Wendy's developing more energy-efficient structures and the possibility of a sugar tax in certain countries throughout the world. But first, we'll talk about Arby's as they continue to develop sandwiches with different meats. This week, they rolled out pork belly sandwiches. They've launched a new smokehouse pork belly sandwich as they attempt to continue to extend their number of meat varieties Even though bacon and pork belly are considered somewhat similar, the company says this amps up their meat selections to now nine on their menu. Yeah, and this is really interesting. This smokehouse platform is actually quite popular already. If you kind of gauge it through the social media outlets, people have really taken a liking to this. Something I'm going to mention quickly, though, is that this platform is probably the most unhealthy platform of all their sandwich offerings. If you look on their website and look at the nutrition facts, you'll see that the calories for the smokehouse pork belly is 860 and 550 of those are calories from fat. Total fat comes in at 61 grams and 23 grams for saturated fat. So just an enormously fatty sandwich, but one with a lot of taste and one that people have taken a liking to. Typically, anytime a sandwich has some sort of pork product in it, it has a ton of flavor, and this is no exception. This really has a bacon essence about it, and honestly, I do like the idea of having the smokehouse turkey and the smoked mountain behind it as sort of a backup plan for those that are trying to get a little bit of a healthier option. But the program here rolled out fairly recently, and we're looking at the company claiming that the brisket sandwich contains a 13-hour hickory smoked brisket. The smokehouse turkey has an 8-hour mesquite smoked turkey with cheddar, onions, and white barbecue sauce. So they're trying a lot of different things out here, but you got to wonder about the preparation of these sandwiches. And what's funny here is that they didn't list these as permanent offerings, although they didn't say they were temporary until you look at the nutrition facts. You then see that these are, in fact, limited time offers. So for our listeners that are, in fact, interested in this smokehouse selection, now is the time to try one of these sandwiches. To go back and look at kind of how we arrived at this point for Arby's, first of all, it began really in 2013 and 2014. Arby's target customer was a little bit older, and their brand image was hitting aging customers, but at the same point, missing millennials. In fact, going back to 2014, they were using a tagline, slicing up freshness. Since then, they partnered with a different ad agency. In fact, Fallon is the one that's representing this latest ad campaign with their tagline, we have the meats. And they've been trying to attract millennials to Arby's, and this promotion with pork belly is no exception. Pork belly is one of those foods that is in somewhat in terms of the foodie crowd. You see a lot of restaurants that target millennials offering dishes with pork belly in some way, shape, or form. And as you mentioned, Leighton, even though it is very heavy with fat, it is also considered one of the more flavorful forms of meat that are out there on the market. 
When they rolled out this We Have the Meats tagline back in 2014, they rolled out with it a line of eight total meats, including that smoked brisket you discussed. In fact, one of their first commercials was a 13-hour commercial that consisted basically entirely of live streaming footage of a brisket that was being smoked for that 13 hours. So as far as their claim about the 13-hour brisket, there is certainly some truth to that. But the bottom line is that they've been trying to attract younger customers now for the last two years. In fact, at one point, Arby's had the second oldest customer base in the quick service restaurant industry, and their CMO, Rob Lynch, told Ad Age back in 2014 that they didn't want Arby's to grow old with that customer base. So they're starting to revamp things. They're not just a roast beef sandwich shop anymore. They're trying to reform their menu and include some of the things that might attract a younger generation of people, including a generation of people that wants to eat a little bit healthier. In fact, Arby's, when you look at their menu top to bottom, they do have a lot of healthy options on that menu for millennials that are slightly health conscious. Of course, the pork belly sandwich isn't one of those, but you mentioned the turkey sandwich in this line has just 500 calories, which in comparison to a number of other fast food sandwiches of the same size is pretty good, especially considering you've got not only the meat there, but also the white barbecue sauce that no doubt adds a good portion of calories. And this isn't the first time either that they've had a sandwich with the term mountain in it. So the Smoke Mountain Sandwich joins their Meat Mountain Sandwich that they came out with back in 2014 when they rolled out this ad campaign as a whole. You know, you talk a lot about marketing here and who their target customer is. And this is something that they've really been thinking about in the last several years, kind of something that you alluded to just now, and that they're really trying to target millennials. And in fact, 38% of their customer base was within that millennial range. Now it's up to 54% in just a two-year span. So that really ties in with the fact that their CMO, Rob Lynch, joined Arby's just in 2013. So he's really put meat at the forefront and authenticity at the forefront of Arby's marketing campaigns. And this obviously has worked out quite well if you're seeing an increase in millennials coming to those restaurants. You're really wanting to target those younger demographics because those are customers that you're hoping to have for the long term. You're wanting to build some brand loyalty in the younger people so they come to Arby's as they get a little older and will keep trying the new product offerings. But overall, you see the resurgence of Arby's and how they're trying to target franchisees in this manner, trying to say that we are investing and they're leading the way with the sandwich franchise category in terms of the quick service restaurant growth. So I think right now is the time for Arby's to be trying these kinds of sandwiches and to find what sticks. I think a lot of customers are going to be pleasantly surprised with the further offerings they have in store. When you look at the media coverage Arby's has generated over the last year and a half, Business Insider lauded them. In fact, they quoted Arby's is growing three times the rate of your average QSR in 2015. They've also received accolades from Fortune magazine, and Arby's is, of course, ready to point that out. They're renovating, and they've set aside still a lot of budget to continue to renovate 
many of their outlets. They're starting to include wood and different designs. They want that deli fresh feel. And honestly, their in-store designs feel very similar to Boston Market, which was a chain that didn't see that explosive growth that was expected out of them in the late 90s and early 2000s. But their tagline on their franchisee page says, instead of we have the meats, we have the momentum. So Arby's really driving this idea home to prospective franchisees. A reminder for our listeners that this is a privately held company. So information on same store sales and sales growth is a little bit difficult to come by. But we can tell you that in 2013, they were seeing a shrinkage in same store sales. Since then, they have grown their number of outlets modestly by usually under 1% per year. But their same store sales have improved somewhat in addition to that invigorated millennial customer base that Arby's was trying to target in the beginning. The addition of pork belly now as we look at this sandwich and look at some of the other facets of this smokehouse line may only help because Arby's is beginning to fall into that same category as, say, Burger King and Taco Bell, where they're trying to not only target millennials, but they want that second life on social media as well. And if you try a pork belly sandwich, it is unique enough to the QSR category that you're likely going to post it on Instagram or some form of social media. And so that can give these sandwiches a life of their own for Arby's. That's something you can't do with a traditional roast beef or roast beef and cheddar sandwich. And that's something else that we should mention too. Even though they dropped the ad campaign that said slicing up freshness, they've still managed to minimize the amount that they're pushing some of their fried foods out there and also the amount that they are underscoring their cheddar sauce. So you're really seeing a massive pivot from Arby's where they're becoming more and more of a deli restaurant rather than a fast food restaurant that serves pretty much exclusively roast beef sandwiches and fried food. They really have listened to what their customers want. And I think one of the reasons for this is that almost one third of the restaurants are actually company owned. So they have over 3,300 restaurants overall, but a thousand of the restaurants are company owned. And so that really tells you that they're listening to what the customers want. And they're really close to the operations of a large percentage of their locations overall. So they're, again, really tied in with what the consumers want. And they've been listening and they've been adjusting their marketing accordingly. Moving on to our second story for the Food Focus podcast, the World Health Organization has released a global recommendation that all countries implement a sugar tax on all soft drinks and other high sugary beverages. Within this report, they cite a study that says that a 20% increase in the price of sugary beverages results in a lower intake overall. So the thesis here is that if countries tax sugary soft drinks that people will be more inclined to drink less of them. This is the type of taxation that's been used for decades and obviously in the U.S. this has been used in a high volume with the taxation of tobacco products. So typically you'll see an increase in taxes of an item and you'll see less consumption of it. And their hope is that people are going to be healthier as a result of a reduced sugar intake overall. Sugar has been related to a number of diseases, one of which is diabetes, which has a high prevalence in the United States right now. And they're thinking that taxation is one way to really mitigate these risk factors to get these diseases. One of the things that I think a lot of companies, at least from a business perspective, are anxious about is the way in which these taxes are administered. And this is something that 
was touched on a little bit before our broadcast as we were talking back and forth because the WHO's nutrition director, Dr. Francesco Branca, said that nutritionally, people don't need any sugar in their diet. And we agreed that he probably should have said additional sugar since there's a lot of healthful foods out there that have naturally occurring sugars. So what happens then with a company like Bold House, who we discussed briefly last week, that makes products that are basically 100% fruit purees. Well, fruit has a lot of naturally occurring sugars. You're going to see a decent amount of naturally occurring sugar in those drinks. So if you charge a tax based on just the grams of sugar in those particular drinks, then you're also taxing fruit and vegetable-based beverages, which doesn't seem quite right. Even something like carrot juice has a good amount of naturally occurring sugar. The way in which certain countries choose to administer this, whether right or wrong, regardless on how you feel about sentence, taxes on products like this could cause some concern for companies. Obviously, the soda companies that are out there are very concerned about this, and that's one of the reasons why the American Beverage Association has spent a lot of money trying to lobby states and cities against the idea that a sugar tax would at all help out the obesity epidemic, as it's termed sometimes. And they underscore the fact that it would not be fair to their industry. And there are some cities that, of course, just have proposed a blanket tax overall on soda. But again, you're looking at one of the fastest growing segments in terms of ready-to-drink teas and coffees. A lot of them have added sugar, but several of those are unsweetened. And for those teas and coffees, depending on how the taxes are levied, if those teas and coffees are unsweetened, it would be good to see those pass by without the tax if your original goal is not to raise revenue, but to try and keep people from consuming the sugary beverages. Yeah, absolutely. I think beverage producers need to look at different ways to compete by using less sugar in their drinks. I think there's an overwhelming trend right now anyway that's really shifting focus away from the sodas like Coca-Cola and Pepsi that you would typically see for generations now into things like teas with naturally occurring sugars and stevia extracts. So honestly, this is something that has been a long time coming. And I think legislation that would allow taxation in the United States or any other country country is just something that's going to usher it along a little bit quicker. But if you do look at the American Beverage Association, they spent a lot of money lobbying in the recent years in cities and states that have been proposing different methods of taxation on sugary beverages. And I think this is something that really needs to be looked at closely. If they're going to spend a lot of money on this, they're going to have to assume that Americans aren't going to be changing their habits anytime soon. But I don't really think that's the case. So I think this money may not be that well spent right now. There are some measures in California to get some tax laws passed for sugary drinks, and they just have not been going through because of all of this lobbying. But overall, I think Americans are more and more concerned for their health as you see these statistics roll out saying that we're at some of the highest obesity levels yet. And if you compare the U.S. to a lot of other countries, we are up there. Some numbers produced by some studies say between 25 and 35 percent of the U.S. population is obese, and this can be tied in with high sugar consumption. 
Sugar is a carbohydrate, and if that carbohydrate goes unused, it then does turn into fat. So this is of concern to those that are worried about keeping a healthy diet, but I think this is something that the beverage industry really needs to look at and say, should we adjust naturally or should we wait for these tax laws to come into place? In 2014, Berkeley, California was actually the first city to have a tax initiative for sugary beverages. And in August of 2016, a UC Berkeley study showed a 21% drop in drinking of soda or other sugary beverages in low-income neighborhoods. So already you're seeing the result of this just in one city in the United States. A 21% drop is quite significant. And based on that, I think a lot of other cities and states are primed to try to copy similar legislation. The real question here, at least as far as this podcast is concerned, because we're not going to proselytize on whether or not people should be drinking sugary beverages or whether or not people should be consuming sugar. We'll leave that to the food scientists and also the healthy eating advocates to talk about that. But realistically, as we look at the business impact of this, you make a good point in that Americans are already beginning to change the way in which they consume beverages. We can't really speak for other countries on this front. But when you look at the sale of soda, for example, we've already seen a rapid decline in the market share of soda when you talk about ready-to-drink beverages in the United States. Instead, you're seeing growing market share in water, growing market share in tea, and growing market share in coffee. Now, granted, as I mentioned, a lot of the tea and a lot of the coffee that's out there has added sugar in it, but many varieties don't. And we're seeing unprecedented growth in bottled water that has just continued now over the last few years. So you're seeing growth in those categories, and you could make a very real argument that people are going away from soda to begin with. And it's up to the beverage companies to either find a way to make the soda more healthy or find a way to adjust. We've seen Coke and Pepsi begin to kind of hedge their bets by purchasing and buying their way into the tea and coffee industry. We see a purchase of Gold Peak, for example, that we've discussed prior to this point on the podcast. We see Pepsi linking up with Starbucks regarding distribution rights on their cold brew coffee. So it's only a matter of time before soda companies realize on a wholesale basis that they need to change their overall approach to how they're marketing beverages just because of changing consumer sentiment. It has nothing to do with the possible tax that could be levied. But you get the feeling, too, that if there were to be something like this passed, then I think a lot of the beverage companies would argue that a likewise bill would need to be passed on sugary snacks and things like pastries, for example. So it could be a little bit of a slippery slope here. And you could make certainly the argument that consuming a bottle of Coke is very much akin to, say, eating a slice of cheesecake where you do it for pleasure and not as a form of subsistence. So there's a lot of arguments that could go back and forth about this particular topic. But again, our goal is to look at it from perhaps a business standpoint, how it could impact the food industry. And honestly, I think those that drink sugary sodas and sugary beverages are very attracted to them in the first place. So the tax might affect their pocketbook a little bit, but it may not affect consumption habits. I think there are other factors like growing health consciousness in the United States that may affect consumption patterns a little bit more vigorously. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and you make a really good point. This is really about the business aspect of this potential legislation coming forth. I think this is a lot about the fairness. I think a lot of beverage companies would say, why tax this when you don't tax that? There's a lot of room for debate there. And I think they could probably have a lot of good arguments as far as how far do we go in regulating the common consumer? But it is interesting. You mentioned Coca-Cola. And this is a company, it's a massive company. It's a $180 billion dollar company that does not break out their soda sales. So obviously they're a massive beverage company. This is what they specialize in on day-to-day operations. But when you look at their sales figures and their quarterly earnings reports, they don't actually break out their soda sales. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's declining and they don't necessarily want shareholders to get upset when they see those declining soda sales. I think there is some natural progression as you see consumers drink a little bit less and shift to those natural healthier alternatives that you had mentioned already. Moving on to our third food focus story, two brands, Starbucks and Wendy's, both in the news recently for their commitment to have more energy efficient locations. And we'll start with Starbucks. Last Tuesday, October 4th, Starbucks celebrated their 1000th LEED certified store. LEED stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. The idea behind their standards is that it provides some sort of a rating system that actually evaluates a building's environmental performance and encourages sustainable design. Probably not a surprise to many listeners that Starbucks is making achievements and making headroads on this front. But what is perhaps more notable is the fact that Wendy's has achieved two awards of late for being energy efficient and for rebuilding some of their restaurants. We know they're going through a massive renovation on many of their restaurants right now. I'll start off by talking about Starbucks and that it really is impressive when you're looking at how they're LEED certified in 20 countries and they're the first retailer with building certified in many parts of Europe. So they've really taken some initiative here. But I think if you look at the business aspect of this Starbucks transition, you're looking at a lot of reduction in overhead costs. You're talking about saving up to 30% by having more efficient lighting. They've implemented a lot of LED lights within a lot of their locations and a 50% reduction in water usage. They're using low flow sinks and other things. Obviously, water is a massive input to a typical Starbucks location. So by doing this, they're able to really help the environment, but they're also able to save a lot of money. So not only do you get the positive response on the PR front of things, but you're also able to really help the bottom line and give the really solid margins at each individual location that has these initiatives set forth. If you look at their website, in 2008, they made a goal to reduce water consumption by 25% and company-operated stores by 2015. They actually beat that goal by 1.5%. So that really shows their dedication to these goals and the fact that they've probably been seeing how it does affect their bottom line in terms of cost savings. So I think this is only the start for Starbucks considering they have so many stores that they manage and so many that they're going to be opening as new locations in the Chinese market in the next few years. 
Yes, yeah, so and moving on to talking about Wendy's. Wendy's received awards for the highest percentage energy savings in a retrofit of a parking lot. So it's kind of an obscure award. And also the largest absolute number of facility upgrades. Something that we've talked about over the last six months, whether it be on Food Focus or Retail Focus, was the fact that Wendy's and Wendy's franchisees were in the process of upgrading many of their locations. They've got a cleaner, more streamlined look, but part of the benefit of this is that they are making and creating new efficient locations and if you were planning on doing renovations to some of their stores which had been pretty much in the same format since the 80s you might as well make them more efficient while you're going through on this and it's interesting to note that McDonald's didn't necessarily do the same thing when they went through a host of renovations a couple of years ago at least not to the same extent that Wendy's has part of what Wendy's has done is installed much more high efficiency lighting in fact these two awards were actually presented to Wendy's by way of the 2016 Lighting Energy Efficiency in Parking campaign, which oversees, of course, the exterior of the building. But they also installed a lot of energy efficient lights and other fixtures inside their individual store. In fact, Wendy's actually accelerated their goals in terms of reducing energy use and they implemented more than 1,100 individual energy upgrade projects at more than 550 restaurants, and this is all since 2009. Now, to put this in perspective, this is still less than 10% of the number of Wendy's stores overall. They have 6,500 stores or outlets in 29 countries, so a long way to go. But still, they've set aside money for renovations and upgrades on facilities. And it would not be a surprise to see Wendy's not only realize some of these short-term accolades, but also some long-term benefit to their bottom line simply because they are cutting down on potentially electric and water costs for the next few years. Yeah, and, and kind of like Starbucks here, they were able to work with the U.S. Green Building Council, and they also worked with several government agencies. As for this award, it was in conjunction with the Department of Energy Better Buildings Alliance. So they've really looked at different avenues that they can make their buildings more efficient. But you're exactly right. You hit it on the head here. They're trying for this bold, ultra-modern design, and these are Wendy's words for the retrofitting of current locations in the United States. So they're already undergoing a lot of redesigning for their stores. And so now really would be the time to install some of this high efficiency lighting and some of these high efficiency air conditioning systems and kitchen equipment. So it really is perfect timing for Wendy's to have these initiatives. And they're going to be seeing these cost savings, just like in Starbucks case, years down the road. So not only are they getting that positive press, but they're also getting those lower costs in those remodeling processes. Well, we move on to the final story on this Food Focus podcast before we get to our food samplings. And it's perhaps the story we've been waiting the most to talk about. Ruby Tuesday reported their fiscal first quarter 2017 results last Thursday. And their results, if you can believe it, were even worse than their fiscal fourth quarter 2016 results. They came in well below expectations, both revenue and 
and earnings were sharply down. And I do mean sharply down as the company reported a quarterly loss of $39.7 million. That's a 66 cent per share loss compared to a loss of just 7 cents a share in the same quarter a year ago. Things have been trending negatively for Ruby Tuesday for a couple of years now, but only now do they seem to be coming to a head as their losses continue to mount. In August, they closed 95 restaurants, which represented the first time Ruby Tuesday closed a significant portion of their overall restaurant base. Ruby Tuesday had 646 company-owned restaurants before that. Now they have approximately 551. So just a few months ago, you could tell that something bad was going to happen on this earnings report. A lot of these expenses that you were seeing reflective in the lack of profit were due to this closure and impairment costs of 32 $2 million. But if you look at that and really separate out the total loss of $39.7 million, you'll see that there was still a difference of about $5 million more in loss than this same quarter last year. So about $4.2 million is how much they lost last year. So a company that's just hemorrhaging cash year over year. Something that I wanted to talk about was the fact that this same quarter last year, they actually had positive same-store sales of about 0.6%. However, this quarter, they dropped dramatically to negative 2.7%. So already you're seeing problems operationally with Ruby Tuesday, and they can't really get a good strategy going forward. They've talked about pricing and a lot of pricing competition within the restaurant industry. And so they've tried to lower their prices and have some different deals based off of that. But now they're looking towards possibly changing up some of their menu offerings in the future quarters. I think the danger for a company like this, or really any company, whether they be retailer in the food service industry, any one of those things, is when you change the mission of the company so many times in such a short period of time, you lose brand engagement and you lose your repeat customers. And that showed in the same store sales metrics falling off a cliff for Ruby Tuesday. Now their new interim president and CEO, Lane Cardwell, who came in after the resignation of J.J. Betkin, who was the previous CEO, after he resigned in September, he wants to target value offerings. And now they're offering a three-course meal for $12.99. They're trying to compete in the same space as Applebee's and Chili's. Those are bar and grills. When you look back to their April investor presentation, and this was just April of this year, they told investors that the bar and grill category was too crowded, that they didn't want to compete there. They also didn't want to compete in the salad category, which is one of the other things that Ruby Tuesday is known for. So they wanted to compete in this middle area, this high-level casual area where they could draw in people and they could attract their higher-priced, what they called polished casual diners that came into Ruby Tuesday. So when you look at the change in use of the Ruby Tuesday brand since 2007 all the way up to 2012, they had more older people, more people 55 and up, 
eating at Ruby Tuesday and far fewer millennials eating at Ruby Tuesday. So they wanted to change this back in 2013 and they repositioned themselves as a polished casual restaurant. So they spruced up their salad bar and they began to offer slightly different food. But even still, that didn't fix sales for Ruby Tuesday. And now you're seeing them bounce back the other way. They couldn't provide value on the polished casual front. And so they've got to try and compete on price, which is not something that they are geared to do. And in fact, during their last quarterly earnings call back in the fourth quarter of 2016, they said that they were being squeezed out of the market because there was intense price competition. But they didn't make a change all the way up until September on the price front and even now they're losing out on the price front to Applebee's who offers the two for 20 menu in certain markets where basically you get a two or three course meal for two people for just $20. So they're still not competing on price all that well. And when you look at their beverage prices as well, if they were to compete in the bar segment, they're really not competitive on that front either. They said back in their April presentation, they wanted to engage families with kids. But the problem is they really don't know how they're trying to engage anyone. They mentioned that they're a salad concept with a full menu, but at the same time, they want to be on top of a salad concept concept. They wanted to be a polished, casual restaurant. Those two things don't necessarily go together so well. Their goal, and you could kind of tell based on their yearly investor presentation, was to occupy the same space in the market as a restaurant like Cheddar's. Cheddar's is a polished, casual restaurant that does a great job at getting families through the door, but they're also competitive on price. Ruby Tuesday doesn't have the second portion of that. What's more is they poured a lot of money and a lot of resources into remodels, and at some point, Leighton, the money is just going to run out. Yeah, that's right. And right now, it looks as though they're operating restaurant-level margin declined 200 basis points down to 13.9%. So now really isn't the time to try to compete on price. And as you said, they're really trying a lot of different strategies to get customers back in through their door. And if you do look at a very brief timeline over the past few years of what Ruby Tuesday has been trying to do, they've implemented new wine selections. They've implemented a smart eating section that's currently labeled as a fit and trim section. So if you look on their mobile site and look at their menu offerings, you'll see a lot of fit and trim labels next to some of their main course options. This hasn't worked either, but I think something that might work for Ruby Tuesday and that they had tried previously is to really focus on the fact that a lot of things are made in-house similar to a Cheddar's that you had talked about just previously. I think when you look at some of their offerings with their burgers, you'll see that they now have gluten-free selections available for about a dollar more, and you'll see that all of their burgers are made with fresh, never frozen beef. So these are things that they could really market and advertise to the millennial population since they are concerned with things like this, food quality and sourcing and things of that nature. So right now, they just don't have a very clear strategy. And that's really evidenced in this last earnings call with the executive team. They don't know if they need new product selections to bring back some of their salad bars. And they don't know if they should still keep on with the smart eating concept in their restaurants. But as for the convenience of Ruby Tuesday, they've tried to have online ordering both for their specific restaurants and for catering. This too hasn't been well executed. 
The website is a little bit clunky. If you go on their mobile website, it's a little hard to find your location. The location map doesn't always work according to how it's supposed to. So I think there's a lot of things that they could do spending the remaining capital they have to really improve this experience for their customer. You see that their cash and cash equivalents were 68.7 million and the debt was around $223 million. That's never a good sign, but the only positive from that is that about six months ago, they were at the same cash position, but we were talking before this recording and that they probably were unable to unlock a lot of assets from those 95 locations that they shut down in August. They do own a portion of their restaurants and they were probably able to free up some capital, but I would use that if I were Ruby Tuesday and go forward with a very large marketing campaign that is straight and to the point that really wants to target a younger demographic and get that traffic number up in the future quarters. When you look at Ruby Tuesday's last investor presentation in April, this really speaks to what you were talking about regarding targeted messaging. And this is something they outlined in their presentation as a need to continue. They mentioned the fact that they were targeting people on Facebook through localized messaging. They were also maintaining a vibrant Instagram page and really playing back and forth with customers overall. But then you look at the follow through on those channels. When you market to someone digitally, whether that be through mobile device or through your traditional browser, you want to be able to follow through on that. You mentioned the wonkiness of their browser-based website. Well, I downloaded before this podcast the Ruby Tuesday app. Now, the app hasn't been updated, at least the version of the app and the app's usability hasn't been updated in nearly three years. It hasn't been updated since January of 2014. It carries with it a rating of just 2.7 stars on the Google Play Store, which tracks very much behind a lot of other restaurants in the same category. Moreover, it's very difficult to order online or even see menus online. The process isn't as smooth as what it is for other companies. And not being able to place orders through the mobile app and only being able to see specialized offers really makes things difficult for Ruby Tuesday. If they go on and on about how they're trying to engage consumers through mobile and how they're using highly localized messaging, they need to be able to follow through on that. And it gets down to more than just push notifications on your mobile device. We talk so much about people wanting to order from their phone, pick it up, and then take that food home. And right now, it seems like Ruby Tuesday really isn't on that train. And to be quite honest, I don't know what train they're supposed to be on because it seems like every quarter or every year they change what their mission is. And even in the same April 2016 investor presentation, it seemed as though they didn't have a strict direction. They wanted to be a salad concept and then they wanted to be a polished casual concept. And then they mentioned the bar and grill concept. So if you don't know what your mission, if you don't know what your identity is going to be, it's very tough to sell that to the consumer. And right now, although I hate to be be overwhelmingly pessimistic about a business and it's entirely possible that Ruby Tuesday could turn it around underneath their new CEO Lane Cardwell who again is interim president and CEO after JJ Betkin stepped down back in September entirely possible that they turn it around maybe they're taken private maybe they're purchased by a capital investments firm after all their market cap is fairly low at this point so it is a purchasable chain certainly but overall it just 
just has the appearance outside looking into me like someone released a balloon that was deflating as it fell off a high-rise building. It's just circling and circling and circling and doesn't know where it's going other than downward. Ruby Tuesday is a publicly traded company, so I think a lot of what you have to say is reflective in the stock price. You mentioned a lot of uncertainty in the months to come, and that's really reflective. If you look at their price one year ago, the stock was trading at around $5.40 a share. Well, that price has since been cut in half. They're trading at around $2.80 a share as of recording this podcast, and that gives them a $185 million market cap. So just to put this in perspective for our listeners who may or may not know too much about company's valuation, Darden Restaurants, who owns Olive Garden, the Capitol Grill, and others, has a $7.7 billion market cap. So they're just a very tiny portion of the market now, and their overall market saturation is going to only decrease if you see those negative same-store sales and potential new closings in the years to come. I tell you, one of the things that could probably make Ruby Tuesday a little bit better positioned in the marketplace, other than, of course, fixing the app, is enabling app purchases and also being upfront about the ability to offer carry out to customers. After all, that is what those millennial families want. They're very clear, if not about their food offerings, if not about where they want to fit in the marketplace, they're very clear in their desire to target 25 to 40 year old females. And one of the things you can use to do that is certainly by offering carry out options and also ordering on the app. But when you have an app that has more one-star reviews than all other types of reviews combined, that's a difficult ask. Well, it's time for Leighton and I to each talk about one menu item that's new to the market of food or maybe just new to us that we've tried in the last week. And Leighton, I understand you've tried another tortilla chip. Yeah, based on your recommendation, actually, I tried the late July organic gluten-free sea salt snack chip, which is just a tortilla chip. It was a one-time buy at my local Costco location. So the bag was about $4.49. And to be honest with you, it wasn't that salty. I expected something like this, especially when it says salt all over the package, sea salt everywhere, to be on the salty side. But this had a really good flavor balance. This was very surprising to me and that a lot of recent chips I've had are on the salty side. I think that a lot of companies are trying to really target those consumers that are expecting salty chips. And so this went with a mild salsa, and I got to say it was delicious. It ranks in my top two as far as tortilla chips, but to be honest, it probably ranks in my top five if you're looking at chips overall. This had so much flavor for a tortilla chip. I'm still just blown back by it, and I got to say thank you for recommending it. They have a lot of delicious brand extensions as well. They do a pretty good job marketing themselves on social media, but you feel like their outreach could be a little bit greater in order to gather a larger customer base. Yeah, absolutely. I think they could do a lot to promote themselves a little bit more. And even as far as buying shelf space, you see them kind of in the back in the organic section, not really buy the conventional tortilla chips that you would typically see inside a grocery store. 
Well, I ventured down to my neighborhood Taco Bell because I heard that Taco Bell this month was introducing a new Airheads White Mystery Freeze. And I know, Leighton, you and I both ate Airheads growing up. The White Mystery were my favorite. I have no idea what any of the flavors within the White Mystery were. You could take an educated guess, but there were maybe four or five different flavors in the White Mystery Airheads that you could get. And I must say, even though I don't drink the sugary drinks, this is, I guess, one of the drinks that might have eventually a sugar drink tax associated with it. I don't drink this type of thing, but it did taste exactly like the one of the White Mystery Airheads at least. Taco Bell has at least advertised that they are changing up the mix on a daily basis, so the taste might vary from day to day, but they hit the flavor on the head if nothing else. Now, I got a 16-ounce freeze during their happy hour for just a dollar, but I've got to tell you, it was also very sweet, and I wasn't able to get through the entire thing. Still, I was amazed just how much it tasted like the White Mystery Airheads. I'm surprised that you're just now getting to that white mystery freeze considering it came out in, I think, early September. Yeah, September 19th is actually when it came out, but I was a little bit slow in hopping on the bandwagon. I honestly just hadn't had a chance to go to a Taco Bell. And in fact, I haven't had an Airhead probably in, in 10 years, maybe 15 years. It's been at least since my childhood since I've actually partaken in an Airhead, but that flavor was absolutely unmistakable. You know, it's it's kind of just right for this kind of podcast since we were just talking about high sugar intake in most of Americans currently with their diets. Indeed, I felt like it put me probably over my sugar intake for the day, that's for sure. Well, for Leighton, I'm Trent. This will do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. Be sure and check us out on Twitter, at The Food Focus. If you've got podcast-related correspondences, please send them to us at retailpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another Retail Focus podcast. A very special interview guest lined up for that one. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.